Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's Creative Director. For this episode, I interviewed music cognition and aesthetics researcher Amy Belfi. Amy is an associate professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology and currently serves as co-editor of the journal Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts. I contacted Amy as part of my Perfect Recognition project exploring intense aesthetic experiences and the role of art in people's personal lives and society as a whole. In trying to find information about these subjects through books, I was eventually led to the area of research called neuroaesthetics. With a background in neuroscience, Amy's contributions span both neuroaesthetics and psychology of the arts. One particular area of Amy's research that aligns with the perfect recognition idea is the partnership of music with autobiographical memories. While I tailor some of the questions specifically to each interviewee, I also have a list of standard questions for that project, the first of which is always to describe an experience when a piece of music, writing, or art made an intense impact. describe an instance when viewing, hearing, or creating a work of art uh, has created an intense or caused an intense reaction? Sure. So the first thing that comes to mind when I think about that is when I was 16, I went to see Green Day in concert. So there's kind of a lot of backstory there. So Green Day was like my favorite, always my favorite band growing up, probably since I was like nine years old. And obviously I wasn't going to Green Day concerts when I was nine years old. Um, but I like, you know, always would have died to see them. And then, um, when American Idiot came out in 2004, I like vividly remember hearing on the radio, I was living in Omaha at the time that, uh, you know, it was 2004, you're still listening to the radio and on the radio, they were like, green days coming to Omaha. And I just flipped out. I like went into my house, like, mom, and she's like, what are you screaming about? I was like, green days coming to Omaha. So anyway, that was like an intense reaction in itself to that news. But then like my friend and I got tickets. We went to the green day concert. I just remember like standing there at that concert. And when they came out on stage, like that was like the pinnacle of my life at that moment when I was 16 years old. I was like, I never thought I would get to see this band in concert. They were my favorite band for like half of my life at that point. And I was just like, my jaw was like dropping. I was just like screaming. I was like so happy and excited. Like it was such, yeah, I think you said intense, like just all sorts of feelings of just like excitement and like nostalgia as much as a 16 year old can have nostalgia and just like absolute, just like joy of seeing like this favorite band that I had liked for so long and never thought I would be able to see them in concert. Nice. Yeah. I've definitely had, uh, concerts like that where, and, and, um, I think part of that is also feeling like the band lived up to the expectations of what you wanted yes. to hear. Yes, it was like it was like every yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I was just like I can't believe I'm seeing. They probably could have done anything to be honest because <laughs> I was just like so excited to see Green Day, but like it was an awesome concert. And at that age, I hadn't even been to that many concerts before. You know, I was like 16 or 17, and um, so yeah, it was like. Every single song, even the songs that aren't my favorite songs, I was just like the entire, like I can't even pick a particular moment because I felt like the entire time I was just like elated for the whole like two hour set. 
How, how was, um, what, what, what did it feel like afterwards? Just, I, I'm just like curious. Yeah, I just remember like being like, I can't believe I really got to see Green Day, you know? Like this just still, I still was like, and every time I would go home from a concert when I was like a teenager, I would just like immediately put on the band's music again once I got in the car and just like listen to it and sing along the entire time home. And my friend who came with me at the time, she and I, anytime we'd basically go anywhere, we would like listen to Green Day together and sing along in the car and do like the harmonies and stuff. And so like doing that on the way home and like being like, I can't believe I just saw these songs like actually performed live. It's just like, it was awesome. <laughs> Nice. Uh, and uh, has that been replicated with other bands that you've seen later on? Yeah, I mean, like, I love live music. I've gone to a lot of different concerts. I've seen, like, a lot of my, like, favorite bands perform live. But that was kind of, like, the first. And that band just meant so much to me. Like, recently, we were cleaning out old stuff from, like, my parents. We're getting rid of, like, old school stuff. And I found an essay from seventh grade when they, you know, try to teach you to write persuasive essays. And it was, like, why Green Day should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was like, I called that one in, you know, 1999 or whatever it was. Like, so, and I, it's just that was so meaningful to me because that band, I felt like, had, like, I had grown up listening to them. And like more than pretty much any other band that was like, oh, they were just like very special to me. So like, yes, I have had these like amazing experiences with live music, but that to me was just like one of my first and like also one of the most like potent and meaningful ones because like Green is the band for me that I've just always liked. Nice. <laughs> um, I, I think I remember reading when I was first looking you up, like uh, back when I first contacted you, I believe I read that you play music, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, for, I couldn't find it again. So could you let me know like what you play and what style and your background? Yes. So like I always grew up, so my two like instruments, one is voice singing and one is piano. Um, and so I always grew up like singing in church choirs as a kid. And I remember always wanting to play piano, but my parents, now that I'm a parent, I understand where my parents are coming from. They're like, we don't want to buy a piano <laughs> because we don't know if you're going to like it. And pianos are expensive. So I got um, a, you know, my grandma had a piano that was passed along to some other relative and it somehow came back to us when I was like 10. And I remember that's also kind of a similarly like potent memory, like getting that piano. I was just, uh, again, elated to get this piano. I was so excited to get it and started taking lessons. I just immediately was like, I love this instrument. Like I love playing piano. And so that was like a big, big part of my life as well throughout um, like at end of elementary and then middle and high school and like I did competitions and was so it was always just like classical repertoire for piano like I can't improvise to save my life like it's just like classical um, music but yeah so I did that all through high school and I took lessons all through college um, loved that and then choir I got really into in high school as well and I did show choir and was like super competitive about that and then I sang in choir all through college um, but like unfortunately I really haven't played music honestly since college really I need to buy a piano but now I'm like pianos are so expensive <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah it is difficult to, to to keep up with playing music as soon as you get into adulthood yeah. and start to have adult responsibilities yes. and need to pay for yourself and stuff like that and that's something I've been kind of uh, trying to explore with people um, just uh, and and I don't have like a well-formulated question for this but um maybe if you could just describe your own experience and what it's the feelings that you have not being able to 
make the time to, yeah. to pursue music right. um, into your adulthood. I feel kind of lucky because I incorporated music into my job in a totally different way. I'm not making music, but I'm like studying music. So music is like a very prominent part of my everyday life because it's my scientific area of research. Right? So I'm studying like listening to music and how music can trigger emotions and memories and those kind of things. So like music is very prominent, but yeah, it's funny that my identity kind of shifted. Like piano is like a big part of my identity and singing all through college and then I get into grad school and it's like my identity went from being like a music person like I was like very I think I don't know exactly what the title is but in high school senior superlatives you know I was like best music best musician or something like that I think so that was like a, a part of me and then I go to grad school and I'm like well now I've changed from like musician to like I'm a scientist <laughs> and like I'm a scientist who studies music but like that science part maybe kind of like took over some of the like identity that was like previously attributed to music and so I almost feel kind of like embarrassed and people are like do you play music and I'm like well kind of you know like it's sad and I really want to get back to it but it's just hard to yeah it's hard to have the time and secondly I don't have a piano and like I sing in the, my car but not in a choir or anything. Um, you mentioned that you can't improvise to save your life uh, and I'm also not a very good improviser mm -hmm. but um I have, do, do you know um, John Slobodov's uh, main book, Musical Mind? Yeah. Uh, he has a story in there that uh, where somebody who's classically trained sort of goes, um, tries to teach himself to improvise. And it's like an, an incredible uphill battle mm -hmm. of difficulty. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder, Sometimes I, I wonder about like the the two tracks of like learning to play music through um, the repertoires yeah. and through like already formulated music versus like getting an instrument, playing around on it and creating things yourself. Yeah. Um, in, in your personal experience, but also what you've seen with other musicians and other people, um, how, how do you feel about can you Can you elaborate on that tension? Yeah, definitely. Like... You know, I said I I was always into classical, and I like classical music, and I love, like, Chopin and stuff. So that was always kind of, like, appealing to me, and I liked And I'm kind of the type of person that, I don't know, like, when I was playing with Legos as a kid, I liked to have the instructions and follow it and build the Lego, and then my brother would be the one, like, playing with the characters. Like, just doing this with my kid the other day. Like, she had a Lego. She's like, I like playing with it more than, than building it and following the instructions. I'm like, I'm the opposite. So maybe that's why I was, like, kind of drawn to, like, the classical music, because it's like, you know, you, you put your own interpretation onto it, certainly, but, like, the, you, the notes are there and you're learning these, these pieces. Um, but, you know, some kids, I feel like, I mean, I'm not, like, a developmentalist. I don't, I'm not a music educator, so I don't know, but I feel like there are kids who, like, are like, oh, I have to practice piano, you know? And it's like, maybe those kids would be more, like, into it if they were taught more kind of, like, improvisational skills or, like, maybe doing kind of, like, different stuff than just, like, this classical. So I don't know if there are piano teachers out there who teach other things. Like, maybe that would be more... There's certain types of people like certain types of things. But, yeah, I don't know. I kind of wish I had learned more skill. I don't know. I... I never wanted to do anything different besides just play Chopin over and over again. So like every single thing that Chopin did. Um, but I feel like now I wish I had had more skills that I, or like sight reading. Like I used to be okay at sight reading. I was never great, but now I like can barely sight read at all. I wish I had more like 
Not to say my teacher didn't try to give me sight reading skills, he did, but like that just not was not my strong suit. And now it's like, because I haven't practiced in like a decade, I feel like I have no like, I could never improvise and I can never sight read well. So like now I'm like starting from square one if I want to like play piano again. <laughs> Now back to our interview with music cognition and aesthetics researcher, Dr. Amy Belfi. What roles have your familial and or partners uh, relationships played in your pursuit of art or science? Yeah, especially growing up, like what kind of um, uh, like encouragements and discouragements did you get in the family setting? Um, and also social relationships growing up, like, uh, you know, for a lot of people, it's like friends that they meet who end up you know, forming bands with and stuff right. like that or that sort of thing. Okay, so like um, my dad is very, very into music and my dad and my uncle are very into music and like 70s, 80s, like power pop, new wave, that kind of stuff. And so like that was a lot of what I kind of had around the house lis listening to growing up. That's kind of how I got into like Green Day alternative, like 90s alternative, because like I don't know, I need to talk to my dad about it because I'm like, my dad was still listening to new music when I was a kid. <laughs> like, I don't have time to listen to new music. I don't know, it was easier maybe back then on the radio. You just turn on the radio. But um, so that's kind of how I got into like Green Day and that kind of alternative 90s stuff was from, from my dad. Um, and then I had an older cousin who was also really into like, she was going to Warp Tour and stuff and bringing me back shirts that were signed by like Real Big Fish and things. So that's kind of how I got into like the ska music and then got my brother into ska music and like, you know, ska punk type of stuff. Um, and so like, that's kind of how my musical tastes were, were formed from a, a lot of like my dad. And um, in terms of like encouraging me to pursue music, like my, my parents were always encouraging about that. like. Um, my mom actually found the college that I ended up going to. She was like reading a book and was like, you have to go visit St. Olaf College. And St. Olaf, if anyone, if people have heard of St. Olaf, it's usually because of choir or because of Golden Girls. Um, but the choir is like, and music is just like a huge part of that, that college. And so that's why my mom was like, you have to go visit this college. And I just visited it and loved it. And so like, yeah, my parents are always encouraging me with piano and with, with choirs and stuff. Um, and like, yeah, they found me, my piano teacher when we moved from Missouri to Omaha and like, he was a huge influence, like amazing, uh, amazing piano instructor. Um, and then really like my, my PhD advisor was like just a hugely influential person in my life, but like very supportive when I came to him and said like, I want to do this music neuroscience research. And that's not really like what his lab has done. He had like one student, he's, he's got a huge lab, but, and he loves, loves music. And so he was like, so supportive to be like, do it. Sure. Do what you want. Like he gave me like the freedom to do this, like kind of off the wall, especially when I started. So I started grad school in 2010 mm -hmm. and like, it's, so heartwarming to see how much the field has, how far the field has come and not even just music cognition, but like the broader neuroscience and cognitive psychology field. When I started doing this stuff, man, people thought I was like nuts. They were like, that's a bad, like, don't do that. It's a bad idea. It's like going to kill your career. Cause it's so niche. Like it's still, it was seen as like very niche and like not mainstream part of part of the field at all in 2010, 11, 12, when I was starting, I would go to conferences. I remember one society for neuroscience, someone came to my poster and was like, what's the point in studying music? Like aggressively questioning me, some random guy, I don't know. And like now it's, 
there's people coming out of left field to talk to me being like, I, oh, I was interested in this music study. I'm going to do something with music. Like, it's blowing up. And it's like, I love it. I love seeing other people, like, finally being like, this is an interesting thing to study. So, so yeah, my PhD advisor kind of, like, took, I mean, it wasn't, like, a huge risk, I guess, on his part, but he was, like, so supportive in letting me do it. And I was just like, you know what, if this kills my career, I don't care because, like, this is what I'm interested in and I want to pursue this. And if it doesn't mean, if it means I'm not going to get some fancy prestigious job, I literally don't care at all about that. So, like, I just wanted to keep doing what I wanted to do and answering these questions. And so, yeah, that was another very influential person in just, like, my pursuit of this kind of, like, combination of, of music and, and science. And, I'm, like, I'm really glad I ignored people who were, like, this is a pointless area of research because I'm like, I don't care what you think. Like, I think it's interesting. So and here I am still here doing it. <laughs> so, What kind of obstacles do you feel like you faced in getting funding because of the niche? Yeah, so so absolutely. When I was in grad school, like I remember I was going to apply for like a specific type of grant. Like my PhD advisor kind of like talked to funding people. And yeah, it was basically like, you have no chance. It's like, don't even try. And like, I applied for a few grants, like going into postdoc and didn't, you know, it's like, you don't know what to blame when you don't get a grant. There's like lots of things that could, could play into it, but absolutely back then. And, and I'm, there's people who, I'm not trying to say that I'm like the, the first person doing music cognition. I mean, there's been people doing music cognition since like, you know, the 70s, 60s, like in psychology, like there's like giants in the field have been doing this for a while. And I like love this field because I feel like we have some very, especially like prominent female scientists, like in music cognition, who've been doing some of the first people doing this. And it's like very ins inspiring. Um, and I look back and I'm like, how are they able to do this back then? Like, cause I faced even like, yeah, funding issues, um, people saying that this was a pointless area of research, but now that's dramatically changed. Like NIH had specific funding mechanisms for music research. Like now I'm you know, like I have an NIH grant myself, which like I wouldn't have dreamed of 10 years ago. Like I never thought that would be possible. And it's like amazing to have funding to do this research and to have it be valued by not just me and my colleagues in music cognition, but like the broader scientific community. Like it's incredible. It's really changing and like it's super exciting. And just like, yeah, it's awesome. How, how do you feel about the uh, the attention from, I, I guess people like me, from like outside the uh, scientific yeah. community, but um, uh, do, do you find that there's more uh, popular interest in it as, as well? I think there is. I think there always has been, though. Like, I think the popular interest was always way more than, like, the scientific interest and, like, the funding interest. Like, even in 2010 or whatever, I wasn't talking to, like, non-scientists who were saying, what's the point in this? Like, it was the science people who were saying, like, that's not a good idea for your career. Or, like, if you want to study... A lot of people who study music were, like, doing it kind of, like, on the side. Like, they would be, like, more, like, perception people or, like memory not really so many memory people but like auditory you know people are language people who like do music on the side as like a side interest and now it's like you can you can be like a music person but i think the public was and like non-scientists were always kind of fucked every not everybody but like most people like music and most people like really hold that tight like that's an it's very important it's not like most people just like music but they really like music and so they think it's valuable but now i think scientific people have kind of caught up <laughs> yeah I don't I don't really know what the explanation is for like why music neuroscience and music psychology has like become more accepted scientifically I don't know I don't know if it's just that like more people started doing it or like if really it was like a top-down thing like when Francis Collins was, who was the head of NIH like decided like we should fund more of this if that 
kind of drove more of the interest if people were like oh actually this is fundable now i don't know what it is or if it's just this like more people doing a thing but it's probably a combination of all of these different different factors but like it's definitely an exciting time to be like doing this type of research now it just feels good to feel like I, I don't know we talk about the music cognition conference how we're kind of like the like island of misfit toys i feel like because those of us coming from like a psychology background were like always seen as like oh you're doing this really niche thing but then similarly like my colleagues who are like in music theory programs to be studying music using science is they're kind of seen as like kind of niche so like we're all like these like niche people coming together but now it's like not quite as niche which is it's cool it feels it feels good to be like you know accepted by at large scientific community um and the one of the things you said earlier was uh that, that everybody loves music i mean yeah. it, it, like besides there's a very small percentage yeah, of people who yeah. are amusical yeah. and don't really connect with music yeah. uh, but like it is something I, I guess this is something that i've been going through a lot in my adult life um just the amount that people do value the music that they like yes but yeah. the um the non-support for like the creating of music or or like <laughs> letting people yeah you know, like like it's almost seen as like a purely um selfish thing to do to make music oh, to, to, right. to like create yeah. music and mm -hmm. pursue music yeah and i'm wondering like how you feel about um about yeah the, i guess the value that people put on um just in general letting people make music the music that they want versus like uh how they feel about the music that they like um yeah oh my gosh i can't i feel like i never have like really thought about this issue before but it it's interesting that like, yeah, people value music when they're the ones like consuming it, but not, but like people, I feel like would be like, oh, I don't want my kids to try and be a musician because it's like not, it's like a dead end, you know, it's not gonna make the money or whatever, but it's like, but somebody's gotta be making the music that you're listening, you like it so much, like, what do you want? Like this to be made by robots, which no, people don't want that. Like that, we, we recently did a study actually, and like, yeah, it's like if, if music is all created by AI, it's like nobody wants that because they want it to be like a personal thing that somebody did. But like, yeah, who do you expect is going to be the person making it? I don't know. That's an interesting, like I hadn't really thought about that issue before. But yeah, I think you're totally right that there's this kind of like weird disconnect or conflict or something between like people liking music but not wanting, like but not valuing people making it or something like that. Anyway, I hadn't thought about that. And now back to our interview with music cognition and aesthetics researcher, Dr. Amy Belfi. How do you feel about the roles of uh, like criticism and um, judgment, like um, which is common with you know pitchfork spin, like mm. other sort of like people talking about music um, yeah. and judging it and assigning value to it? Um, how do you feel about that as an institution and, and its role and and, yeah. and what what it does to music? It's interesting that you say that. Like, I haven't thought about this before, but as soon as you said that, I was like, there's gotta be some social psychologists probably at this meeting who can like tell us something about this, right? With like, 
There has to be studies. I don't know from probably in music. There's not as much social psychology of music, honestly, as I feel like there could or should be. Um, it's mostly like cognitive people studying music. But anyway, like it's got to shape your judgment when you see something on Pitchfork that's like at the perfect rating or whatever. And then you listen to it and you're like, OK, this is a perfect album by these like experts or whatever. Like. And then you feel like you should like it or whatever. Pitchfork trashes something, and you feel like you shouldn't like it. If if you ascribe like uh, expertise to Pitchfork, if you're someone who's like literally never heard of Pitchfork, then you're like, who cares what they say? But but yeah, I'm sure that like criticism drives people's willingness to like purchase or like stream or whatever music, or even influences their perceptions of it or their their own judgments of it too. Um, I don't know. I'm not trying to say like we shouldn't have like critics or whatever. Like I think that is an important role, but yeah, it makes it harder to have like a pure judgment of the music itself. But yeah, now I'm like I feel like there's got to be research on that. Like they mo someone must have done studies where they have people like listen to music and then critic X said this is terrible or like critic Y said this is great and then look at the differences in ratings. That must exist. I don't know. I feel like there's certain personality types too that like are more willing to like go against what's popular. Like I don't know. I remember like in high school like you know you have friends that are just like oh my favorite bands Jack Johnson or whatever you know whatever was on the radio at the time it was like their favorite musicians and like for me it was like I kind of like thought I was cool and was like oh I don't like you know popular music or whatever you know like I don't like Jack Johnson whatever. Um, and that's just like, I don't know if I'm again, I'm not like a personality psychologist, but like there's got to be like personality traits that like lead you to be more willing to like kind of go against the, the, the grain of what, you know, the establishment is saying. Mm -hmm. What roles do you think uh, race and gender have played in your, uh, in, in your path to where you're at right now? Yeah, so I was very active in this like women in science organization in grad school. And so I've been like very, I guess, attuned to like, and, and also my current university is 75% male students and faculty. So it's like very noticeable to be in the minor minority. Like um, in my department, I'm not, but I was talking to a student the other day. I was teaching a class in one of the other buildings that I think was like mechanical engineering. It's mostly engineering school. And I was like, whoa, I never noticed this, but we step out of this classroom and I'm like, it's just dudes everywhere. So like, I'm very kind of like attuned to that. Um, for me personally, I have felt like incidences of like kind of sexism towards me more so when I'm like in environments that are like heavily male dominated. I am very, I'm lucky though. in that like, I was talking about this with, with a colleague earlier, I was like, Man, can you imagine like trying to be in science like 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Like it's I feel like dramatic. Like I'm I'm not trying to say in any way that like sexism does not exist. It 100% exists, but like I feel like it's better now. Like I personally can't look back and find too many incidences of feeling like I mean, I can I can, but like in my day-to-day -day life, I feel like pretty pretty lucky. Um and I also have like a very supportive current environment in my department um, and like leadership in my department and stuff. So so that's all good um, right now. But it's only shaped, I mean, it, it, it shapes 
Your demographics shape like who you are as a person. So it certainly influences also like my way of thinking about the world. And that's part of why people are like, you know, we need like diversity in science because each of each person's background brings something new to the table. And like that kind of explains like, why are people always studying Western music? Well, because who's been doing this research? It's like white people doing this research. So that's why they're studying this like predominantly like white male type of music, like classical music. So if we want to be able to make claims about like universality or about music in general, like we need to be studying all types of music. We need all types of people to be doing this work. But then it's it's like hard to want to like bring people into spaces that are antagonistic or hostile towards like, I don't know, my university, I wouldn't say is like, my department's really good, but I wouldn't say it's overall like a very welcoming place if you're not white and if you're not male. Like, so do I want to be like recruiting people to this place that is like on an institutional level antagonistic toward? I don't know. It's like this conundrum. Um, and I only have, um, yeah, one last question on the list which is on a broader level, how do you feel about the placement of art in society historically and currently, and where would you like to see it go? Oh, that's an interesting question, man. I thought you were just gonna ask me questions about science. You're asking me these like hard, deep, thoughtful <laughs> questions. Um, it's kind of like related to what you're saying earlier that like everybody individually likes music and art or whatever but it almost feels like devalued on like a bigger, broader level, just the whole like taking music out of schools or like saying, I wouldn't want my kids to like be a music major or it, taking like humanities and arts, like cutting majors in colleges and universities. Like, why would you be an English major? Like these are pointless or whatever. And it's like, well, do you watch movies? Do you read books? Do you listen to music? Because if you don't, like, then fine. But if you do, then you need to, we need to have people who are creating this. Like, what, you want our culture to be this, like, soulless, artless, like, thing? So, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's people individually valuing these things, but then on a broader level, like, saying English majors are pointless or, like, why are you studying music in college? Like, so I'm thinking about more from, like, this higher education perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a shame. It's like, I feel like people are saying, oh, everybody should just be engineers because like, that's what's gonna make money and that's like what drives our society. But it's like, well, so people shouldn't have anything to enjoy. Like <laughs> people shouldn't have art or music. So anyway, I guess that's kind of like this disconnect between you, you enjoy and you consume this, but you don't want people to be able to produce it. It's hard, like I remember my piano teacher in, in high school being like, do you want to be a concert pianist? Because like, that's basically impossible. Like, he's like, you know, the world doesn't need many more concert pianists every year. And he's like, so if you want to be a performance major, like you're gonna have to be okay. Like being an, an accompanist for a church choir or something, are you gonna be okay with that? And I was like, mm, no, I'm gonna do a psychology major instead. And that's like, but I appreciate that advice because it is like when you're, when you're 16, you're not really thinking practically, but you do kind of have, I mean, yeah, it's hard because like you said, it's maybe it's hard to become successful in these fields. But yeah, it's like you don't want there to be no musicians anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. It's I don't know the answer. Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. 
We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the donate button on the rss.com page of this podcast or visit talkingwriting.com slash donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at talkingwriting.com.